Welcome to the Kintsugi Heroes podcast, where we share inspirational stories of everyday people going through different challenges and how they overcome them. Please be aware that the story you're about to hear may have moments of deeply felt emotions and personal experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. If you love this conversation, we'd love you to like and share it with your friends so we can continue to share more inspiration and hope to as many people as possible. Now, listen up for our next hero story. This episode is with Kit O'Malley, a lovely lady who shared a very eloquent and detailed account of her challenges and struggle living with undiagnosed bipolar disorder and how that impacted her daily life, her ability to be a mum, her ability to function effectively with, with family, with life, with a career. She's a trained psychotherapist and yet because of her bipolar disorder, she was not able to work. She talks about how she reframed it and she's got a very unique take on bipolar disorder and now she's a mental health advocate and does a lot of educating and public speaking and writing and support for those that have similar conditions and who have been through the kind of struggles that she once was experiencing. It's a really heartfelt, warm story and I love what she's doing, just the joy that she's bringing to the world through giving back. It's really beautiful and um, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kit O'Malley. Hello, here we are. It's another episode and I am so excited to be here with Kit O'Malley. Kit, welcome to the show and thank you for coming to share your story. Well, thank you for having me. I love I love what you guys are doing. I love the metaphor of Kintsuki. I, I just love everything about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, you know, it takes sometimes a, an ounce of courage and two ounces of, you know, just bravery and, and I don't know, a whole lot of diving into the unknown to, to brave it all, bear it all and share your story. So I just want to honour you for, for doing that. And thank you in advance for coming on and, you know, sharing this so that you can provide inspiration and hope to others. It's, it's really beautiful. It's very meaningful. Well, thank you. Well, this is about you. So how about I hand over to you and ask you to take us back to where your story begins. Well, my story begins when I was an 18-year-old um, biochemistry major at UCLA, University of California at Los Angeles. It's a big school, like you know, University of Melbourne would be a big school. So um, anyway, I was a biochemistry major, and um, my whole life I wanted to be a doctor and was a very high achiever and uh, worked very, very hard to get uh, good grades to do what I was doing. And um, and I, but I was depressed. I was severely depressed and suicidal. Um, I was in, in so much, it was basically a living hell. I was in so much darkness that I thought that the world would be a better place without me. I thought my parents would be better off without me. I felt like I was a burden. I felt like, uh, and, and those were just, and I've heard those sort of thoughts from a lot of other people who suffered from depression. It's just depression lies. And it's horrible in the way in which it lies and the, and the pain it puts people through. 
Um, so I um, thankfully got help. Um, I reached out to a friend, uh, well, to, to my friends, but at, at this particular crisis point, I reached out to a friend. I had, I was in a crisis where I actually was, had a suicide note and the means to kill myself. And I had plans and, and I just all of a sudden I sort of stepped aside outside myself and observed what I was doing and went, oh no, this is not just thoughts anymore. You're actually going to carry this out. And I knew that my desire to live was stronger than that. And so I went and I called for my friend to stay with me until I got into a good psychiatrist or psychologist that day. I went to my um, resident assistant in the dormitory and um, said, please get me in to see someone. You know, the resident assistants help the students in the dorms. And so um, she got me in to somebody who was very helpful. And that helped me a lot. You know, um, I didn't tell my parents because I was ashamed. I felt I was a failure because of this. Um, I ended up um, quitting UCLA um, and later transferring up to UC University of California, Berkeley, um, and um, continued my 20s, you know, from then 18 through my 20s, going to, to psychotherapy to cope with my what was then a chronic depression. Um, not as severe, but I lived with it. Um, I even became a psychotherapist in my mid-20s. And then when I was 30, I had a severe depressive episode. And um, at that time, I couldn't even get out of bed. And I called up my parents at that point, and I said, I can't even get out of bed. This is just so overwhelming, it's so heavy. You know, I felt it physically. And they said, why don't you go to your doctor and try medication? You know, because if, if therapy isn't helping you right now, maybe what you need is medication. And it was very something very physical, this feeling. And so I um, went to my doctor and I took, um, she prescribed me the first generation um, SSRI, that's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It was Prozac. Um, and then um, I had side effects of that. So she prescribed another medication to counteract the side effects. And then my parents said, well, this is my, just my general physician. This wasn't a psychiatrist. I said, why don't you see a psychiatrist for a second opinion? And um, he took me off those medications and put me on um, what's called a tricyclic antidepressant. And I had a reaction to that. And I became manic. And I had a week-long, full-blown manic episode where I was, wasn't able to sleep. I was just taking cat naps in the middle of the day. I I was up all night. I was thinking my I had streaming speeding thoughts uh about in binary, which is zeros and ones. So I had zeros and ones going through my head and I wasn't a computer so I couldn't interpret them. That's how computers think. <laughs> I had thoughts of um, Christian mystic saints, which I had some familiarity with and was fascinated by. And I had thoughts about chaos theory, which is mathematics and physics, which I wasn't an expert in or knowledgeable about, really. And so I just was observing these thoughts, thinking, wow, this is fascinating. I wish I could understand them. They're going so fast. And finally, after a week, a friend of mine called my parents and said, Kit needs your help. She, and she 
told them what was going on. So my dad flew up and she called my priest in my church and she said, Kit needs your help now. And so before my dad got there, the priest brought a seminarian who had bipolar disorder and they came over um, and sat with me and encouraged me to call my psychiatrist, which I did. And I described what was going on. And he gave me um, antipsychotics to stop the the psychotic thought process, which it did. Um, But that was a huge changing point in my life. Um, I, my brain had to recover from that. Um, I wasn't, I tried to go back to just taking a temp job, a temporary job. And I wasn't, when I drove, I, uh, would fall asleep. When I tried to read the words, the letters in a sentence would go apart. The words, I mean, the, the letters in a word would go apart. The words in a sentence would go apart. I couldn't hold things together enough to even read. And here I was, somebody who had a master's degree. I was highly educated and I couldn't read. Um, and I realized I wasn't able to work. I needed to take time off to, to have my brain heal, basically. Um, I moved back in with my parents. Um, I continued to get treatment uh, where, in, where they lived in Southern California um, and actually got excellent treatment. It helped me a lot. But I wasn't, even though I'd had this manic episode, I wasn't at that point in time diagnosed bipolar. They thought it was just a reaction to the medication. And because I had been functional before that and not had an episode like that before, they said, let's just treat you as if you have the chronic depression that you'd been treated for before and just be very careful with my medication. So I was carefully titrated up to a dose. Um, And then... um, so I lived with on antidepressants and in psychotherapy throughout my 30s um, until I uh, was married and had a, uh, in fact, I met my husband right after that breakdown. Um, here I was working as a temp, living with my parents. And one of our first dates, my husband says to me, you are the most independent woman I ever met. And I was just like, are you kidding? I'm living with my parents. I'm a former psychotherapist who's now working as a file clerk. And, and he's like, no, seriously, you are. So what is so important there, and I think it's an important pers- thing for people to understand about mental health conditions, about mental illness, is that people are more than their symptoms or their circumstances. And he could see that. He saw who I was as a person. He saw into my soul rather than into my circumstances of that I was in a crisis or that I had an illness um, or brain disorder or whatever you want to consider uh, what I was going through. So I, at 39, by then we were married and, where was I, 39? Yeah, I think I was 39. <laughs> we were married and we had a, a, a toddler and I... um started to have euphoric feelings and um we i had feelings that god was calling me to one church for spiritual direction and to another church for um bible study and although my behavior was fine there was nothing wrong with going for spiritual direction or going to bible study i wasn't it wasn't like the mania that i had had before but still i recognized that euphoria like uh oh danger sign <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of of that mania 
And so I called the advice nurse on my insurance card on the back of the, and I had my husband get on the phone. I said, please listen. I want you to understand how serious this is. And I explained to her my symptoms and she said, go to an emergency room or see a psychiatrist today. So I wasn't able to get in to see a psychiatrist. It was a Friday. So I wasn't able to get in to see a psychiatrist. But, um, and I didn't want to go to an emergency room because I know that that meant that I'd be hospitalized. And I, I just wasn't ready to be hospitalized at that point. And so, um, I went to my doctor, my regular doctor. I had scheduled an appointment on Monday to see a psychiatrist and saw my regular doctor that day and had, she put me on some, uh, mood stabilizers to get me through the weekend. Um, now, I was still nursing my son, my toddler son at that time. And he, those medications, like the, the antidepressants I was taking was safe to be in breast milk because it was a very low level in the serum level. But the mood stabilizer was a big no-no. So I had to figure out a way to abruptly wean <laughs> my son. And I have another little wonderful story of my husband. Um, and why, and I will say in terms of for anyone with chronic health conditions, especially for people with mental health conditions, having a supportive family and support system, you know, a strong support system is huge. So my son didn't believe that mommy wasn't going to come home that because I, we, we decided I would, with, with the doctor, we decided I would go to my parents for the weekend just to be, to, to wean him. And uh, that was our agreement. You know, we had to like make an agreement with the doctor that I wasn't going to breastfeed my son <laughs> on this med. So he insisted, my son insisted on sitting at the driveway, you know, because, and wait for mommy to come home. And then my husband started to drizzle rain. So my husband talked him into going underneath the eave. And then he talked him into going on the front door porch. And then, and then on the stairs, and then up the stairs, and then into bed until finally he fell asleep looking at the open front door. So it was just sweet that he was, my husband was always very sensitive with him. So that began my journey with dealing with the fact that I had bipolar disorder. Um, and, um, and since then, I've, um, at first, at first it was actually a very painful thing because I had been trained as a therapist. I had an internalized bias, an internalized stigma about the difference between living with depression and living with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. I thought that I could be a good mom if I had depression. But here, all of a sudden, just my label and medications changed. I was the same person. I was the same mother. But I feared for my son. I thought, oh, no, this is a serious mental illness. It's progressive. I, I could be violent. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be a good mom. And I put him in daycare and went back to work, actually, because I was so afraid for his safety. Um, but I, that wasn't sustainable. I wasn't able to take care of myself, work. And then come home and be a mom. It just, it was too much. And I, I actually ended up after a couple of years, um, being voluntarily hospitalized. Um, and, uh, and then after the two weeks of hospitalization, I did what's called partial hospitalization, 
You might also think of it as like day treatment. I would go to the hospital for an outpatient treatment all day, like a, a job. <laughs> you go to groups all day and then go home at night. Um, and I did that for a few months. Um, and then I ended up staying home from then on. And as it turns out, my son needed me at home. He turned out to be struggling himself. He had ADHD and anxiety and depression. Um, and um, he really needed me. And actually, as a, when I was a therapist, I was a therapist of children and adolescents. So actually, I had a skill set that I was able to help him with these things. And of course, got him into therapy. I got him into therapy when he was four and into um, psychiatry when he was five because his symptoms weren't helped by therapy. Um, and he's doing very well now. So Ill, early intervention for him helped. He struggled a lot up but um he's now a college student um and living on his own um and uh i mean we pay for the bills but <laughs> he's living on his own basically after this after my hospitalization um one interesting thing is that after the hospitalization my psychologist i was seeing at the time said you keep on talking about call like calling so let's talk about that a little bit because it was a theme of mine, even when I was in my 20s and kept on going, but it never made sense to me because I wasn't a real church, churchy person. Um, I wasn't churched uh, growing up. And so I, I, I decided to go to seminary to answer the call. And when I was in seminary, it became clear that I had a call to mental health ministry. And so even though I do this, as a as a volunteer as an individual and also as a volunteer for the United States uh, nonprofit called National Alliance on Mental Illness for my local um, affiliate, um, I'm so I don't do it through a church right now, but still I consider it like something a God thing, a purpose thing. You know what I mean? It's like it's like I I either either you can think of it as me reframing and making use of my experience and my journey to help others or that I was given this disorder to purpose me to do this and to help others. Um, and so to, by sharing my story or by volunteering, um, so I, um, yeah, so it took, I mean, it took a while to come to that realization. It's sort of like it's easy to look in, in retrospect as somebody who's now 59 and go, oh, everything makes sense in my life. When <laughs> It didn't make sense when I was going through it. When I was going through it, it was painful. It was horrible. It was awful. Um, but not all, my, not my whole life, obviously. But, um, but now going back, so much that I went through makes sense. Now I can have understanding and passion that is deeper than it would be if I hadn't have gone through this. Sorry for the interruption. This is Ian Westmoreland, the founder of Kintsugi Heroes, and thank you for listening to this story from one of our amazing heroes. Our mission is for these stories to provide hope and inspiration to people experiencing life challenges and to also educate the broader community on how best to provide support. If you would like to help us to continue to produce more hero stories, 
and cover more adversity themes, we would welcome all donations. These can be made via our website, kintsukiheroes.com.au. The donate function is at the bottom of the homepage. We'd also welcome any feedback. You can email me direct using ian at kintsugiheroes.com.au. Now let's get back to the story. So I'm a very, um, I'm a big believer that we all have, well, first of all, that we're all loved and that we all have purpose. And that's what I love about what, what, what uh, you're doing in this podcast is that it's under uncovering that hidden value that everybody has and that their stories have in inspiring others to know that, yes, you too can overcome this. You too are more beautiful having been broken and put back together. Um, I, I just love that metaphor. So I, I don't know what else to say at this point. <laughs> Thank you, Kit. Do you have any questions? Yeah, I do. You mentioned um, when you got the diagnosis of being bipolar and how that flipped, you know, just having that different label flipped your own perception of yourself. Can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, how it made you feel? How did it change your relatability maybe to your husband or your friends or your son? Like, you know, what what did that feel like? Because I could imagine for someone who gets a new diagnosis and especially with mental health, it can be life-altering. And I'd love to sort of hear from you how you experience that and then how you move forward. It was very, I mean, I had, my my internalized stigma was so deep, it took me a lot of work to overcome that, like the work of psychotherapy, the work of life, to, to realize that I had value, that I was a good enough mother, that um, that I was, that I had value whether or not I was working in a in a job, because I had been so as as in my my whole life i had been so achievement oriented and everything was measured by achievement and now all of a sudden that achievement was i mean i'm still an achiever but you know that <laughs> my measure of achievement changed completely um and i had to value my own self-worth independent or you know to value my own self-worth independent of achieving anything. And that's a hard thing to learn when you've been so conditioned in your culture, um, in your family, in your role in your family. Uh, you know, I was the firstborn of two firstborns and there was just this um, expectation that I would achieve more than they had. And they were achievers. <laughs> so it was, it was a lot. I mean, once I had the breakdown at 30, my parents uh totally uh just lovingly helped me and there was no expectation after that that I would be a super achiever at all there was just not that they gave up on me but they were just like all they really cared about was that I was well um and and I'm thankful for that um but I still had it so deep inside myself that I felt like an, a, a failure um, and it's hard to feel um, 
that you failed because you're no longer able to do what you used to be able to do. But looking back now that I'm 59 and have an adult son, I say, oh, I even reframed the, the, uh, because it was so hard for me to give up on having a professional identity. I even reframed it as, you know, God, um, gave me this illness so I'd stay home for this I needs child who really needed me at home with him. Um, and, um, but it took a while to really do that, to be, to be able to see that and to see long term that yes, I was able to help him. Um, and yes, he's a success and that's fabulous. And, you know, um, and, and the way in which we had to parent him wasn't the way in which most people parent their kids because he wasn't like most kids, you know? So, um, but he's doing great. So, um, and I'm doing great too. So, (laughs) I mean, I'm basically, I'm, I'm happy with my life. I'm satisfied and at peace. I have, I, I have a, a still same loving husband over 25 years and I just feel blessed. You know, I mean, I think that, that having that love in my life has been what's been so key to that. It's such a beautiful story, Kit, and, and the way that you just talked about having to reframe everything and relearn your own value. And that's, that's again, about love. This whole thing has been about love, love from others, love of yourself, love from your husband, love of your son. And, and then love of, of others, which is demonstrated by the work you do through your calling, through your, your purposeful mission. So it's just been this journey of embracing, learning, receiving, and being in this space of love, really. Totally. Isn't it? And yes, it is. And that self-love is, yes, that's the big part of it. And that's what's missing yeah. so much in so many people's lives. And I'm not, it's, it's hard to tell somebody who's in the d- depth of depression, oh, love yourself. No, you know, <laughs> obviously yeah. you need to deal with the crisis. But mm. it, the, part of the work of, 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 of mental health recovery is loving yourself without a doubt. Mm. Um, and, um, and that's, I would say, is, is key to healing mm. in general. For, for anybody, even those who don't, have mental health disorders or diagnoses to me it's it's almost a disorder of the our our society of our current world that we have not been taught how to love ourselves would you would you agree with that and then there's all these stigmas i would agree i would agree not only not you know how to love ourselves but to 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 measure like you know you're worthy of love if you do X, Y, and Z, which is wrong. <laughs> it's just, that's horrible. It's just a horrible thing. And it's, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's, well, I agree. It's pretty profound, actually. And I, I can only imagine what it feels like to have that diagnosis and be in that state of judgment of oneself because you can't live up to your own expectations or what you think others expect of you to be worthy of love. And so, like I said, I, you know, I, 
I've not been in that situation before. I've been in my own version of that, you know, but not with the, the mental health diagnosis. And, and I can only imagine how lonely and painful and horrible that would feel as a human. Yeah. I mean, I think that it was because the, my path has been so long. I mean, even when I felt that internalized stigma, there was still a big part of me who had been working in therapy since I was 18. So you're talking about a 39-year-old who'd been in. Right now, I'm a 59-year-old who's been in therapy since she's been 18. So I'd already been working a lot. You know, so it, it's, it wasn't that all of myself was in self-loathing, but there still was that, that, oh, I have this different diagnosis that is scary. You know, I'm now this scary monster sort of thing, which is horrible, you know, because it would be horrible to think of that of other people, but then to think of that of yourself. And that's not just the thing about self-love, but also there is so much stigma around um, mental health conditions and so much. And I was somebody who was supposedly an quote unquote expert. And for me to have thought that is just terrible. That means that there are psychotherapists out there who think that, and that's terrible. Um, and um, yeah, so, cause I wasn't a bad therapist. I was actually a good therapist. So, <laughs> so, so it's like, but to think, oh my gosh, how did I, how did, that was just terrible. How important to you has it been to be able to trust the people around you in your supportive network and be completely open with them? That's great. That's a great question. Um, I've always been by nature an open person and I don't always, I've overwhelmingly get positive feedback, but there's always people who, and often there's somebody close, you know, not, it wasn't my husband, but you know, there's somebody close who, who thinks that you're making a mistake by being open, you know, um, you know, that if you say how you're saying this and now, now what if you have your son taken away from you because you just shared this on, you know, social media or on your blog or in your book. And, and I was, I had that reaction once and, and I've had other negative reactions and, and I, but I, I, I welcome people to sort of say what they have to say, unless it's just hateful. But to that, you know, oh, your son's going to be taken away from you. I was always so um, invested in being the best mother I could and in having my son in therapy and me in therapy and us in therapy together that I knew that that would never happen because I was like super motivated. You know what I mean? It's just like doing all the things they'd have you do anyway. Um, So I was just, and I wasn't terrible. It's just like there was instances where, you know, like my son called me a name and I, I don't know if this is G rated. So it's like an effing B and I slapped him when he was a kid. That's not okay. Um, and, but I wrote about it because I think it's something that we need to deal about, deal with, you know, child abuse and losing your temper with your child is something we need to talk about. And I did apologize to him. I took him to the doctor. We talked about therapy, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I mean, he wasn't hurt. But he, but still, I said, please tell the doctor. This is not a secret, you know. It's, you don't have to keep secrets. Um, and um, so I, 
I think it's important that we deal with issues. And so I've always been very open with things. And I've, because I've been in the situation of being a, a reporter, a mandated reporter of child abuse, I knew that what I had done did not come to the, it was not where the government gets involved and takes your kid out of the house. <laughs> Slapping your kid when he calls you your name is not considered child it's not, it's, I'm not saying it's okay, but it's not considered problems. <laughs> what a beautiful story. I, I love hearing your reflections and, and it's nice to hear that your son is doing great and he's independent at college, he's happy, and you speak so lovingly of him and, and the whole journey and I love the way that you've been able to draw out, I guess, the gift that you've been given through all this. And it doesn't always feel like a gift it never feels like a gift when you go through it let's face it uh, right. you know when we go through pain and, and challenge and suffering it's it's not a gift and I don't think there's always something a lesson to be gained from it sometimes it's something we just have to get through yet you've found purpose and meaning at the end of your challenging journey and that's a really beautiful thing really precious yeah thank you I agree, and mm. that's why I appreciate that your project for mm. showing those people who are who mm. have their whole all so many different stories that come to the same conclusion. Yes, which is wonderful. Yes, and I just want to acknowledge the work that you do because uh, you know it, it takes someone very unique with a very unique set of, I guess, skills attributes and life experience to do what you're doing to to help others in the way that you are and be that support advocate um what was the role you called it um, for mental health a i'm um we call it mental health advocate basically and the way i do it is i do a lot of educating and public speaking and, mm. and writing um and i also if people reach out to me and I'll, I'll respond, not as a therapist, just as, because I'm not licensed yeah. anymore, but just as Kit. <laughs> That's really nice to hear. Thank you. I've got a final question for you, Kit. So if, if there's someone listening to this who is, can uh, identify with any of the parts of your story that um, they might be going through or have been through any version of your story, what would you like to share with them or say to them? Well, aside from get help, get help, it, it works. No, I'm not saying easily, you know, medication and treatment is all, try, is, there's a lot of trial and error and to keep on trying, you know. Um, but in addition to reach out for help and that help helps and to keep on trying, <laughs> it's that you are loved and that you your life has purpose. Even if you might not see it now, all of our lives have purpose. We, you have value. Thank you for that. It's a very powerful statement, and I know that someone might sort of doubt that, but it is true, and you of all people, given what you've been through, know that. So your, your journey and example is certainly one that um, I think others can learn from and be inspired by. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Kit. I really appreciate it. 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kintsugi Heroes. Please like and share the show to your friends so we can get this out to even more people. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out using the contact details below. And join us next week for our next Heroes story. Until then, keep being you and remember that we are all heroes in our own unique way. Only when it's broken Only when you're broken Only when you're broken